Welcome to Unapologetics. This is our eighth episode. We've got a lot on our plate for tonight. So we're going to start by talking. Um, and I think it's going to take up the majority of our time tonight because it's, it's sort of a political and religious topic rolled all into one. Um, we're going to be talking about modern art and the monstrosity. In all its forms. <laughs> yes. And the monstrosity that is um, abstract art and modern music and all of the, the various debased forms of quote unquote art. Uh, that mar our cultural landscape. And this is all based off of, at least uh, the impetus for this episode, was Stephanie's, and this was, I, I typically enjoy Stephanie's work, obviously, otherwise I wouldn't uh, do a podcast with her if I, if I didn't find her up to, up to snuff. But of course I do, so I, I want most of <laughs> Thank her you. Um, emphasis on most. But this, uh, in particular, was, was one that I, I really enjoyed. She wrote, uh, a piece over at 1 Peter 5, which we will link below, which is entitled My Catholic Quest for Beauty. And beauty is a term I think we don't talk enough about in the church, particularly in the post-conciliar church, where we've, uh, we open the doors of the church, we open the windows of the church to the modern world, and unfortunately the modern world is bereft of uh, art that is intelligible or speaks to the senses or in any way um, calls us to aspire for higher things. So Steph... Um, at long last, I'll stop talking. Why don't you introduce your article, tell us, uh, give us a little summary, editorialize a little bit, if you will, and then I'll come in, guns ablaze, going after modern art. <laughs> Sounds great. I know, I suggested, that, you know, I was like, well, we could always talk about my latest article, shameless self-promo, and I was like, also, I know Johnny hates modern art as much as I do, so we can have some good rants about it, but yeah. Um, so I guess the, the I am... I kind of wanted to write a little bit about my my own experience in in my conversion and that um, all the ways that my faith in Jesus Christ has changed my life. Right? It's it's it really it really does change everything about you. And when I first became Catholic, a lot of you know that the kind of you know the the kind of genesis of my conversion itself was was truly realizing that though I was seeing evil things in the world and and I knew that they were wrong. I had nothing positive to fight for. And I really, I really feel like my experience with art in all forms has, has been like that. You know, I can see, okay, this art sucks. <laughs> this music sucks. This architecture sucks. I'm surrounded by ugliest and just banal, just, yeah, it's, it's all very, um, I don't know, based on animal instincts and the passions and all these things. And it, it doesn't call you higher. And I think most people listening to this can probably tell that on an instinctive level, but it was it was difficult to to have that realization and then to actually do something about it. So um, I started by just trying to read about other people who had had this experience and to read about what makes good art, right? And is beauty objective, you know? And then of course I, I came to came to read about. It. I think we've, we've touched on this a little bit in past episodes, but you know, beauty is objective, right? And that because beauty is a reflection of truth, right? Because because. God is truth and that things that we create that are beautiful reflect him in some way. That's not to say there is, there is no, um, there is no sense of, um, you know, subjective taste whatsoever. Right. Of course I might like blue more than I like yellow or something, but there is a, as a, is a standard to, to what is beautiful. Um, yeah. So I guess I just, I knew that and I wanted to find it. And yet when you're raised in the world we're in, it's, it's really difficult to, to know, how to find something to fill that, fill that void, right? How to find something that is beautiful. And, and I, I grew up, I think like most of us just listening to, you know, 
normal music, didn't have a ton of exposure to art. Like I never was really super into art or music. So on the plus side, I never was uh, you know, a fan of modern architecture, or modern art. So I didn't have to like cast any of that aside to, <laughs> to find beauty. It's just more that there's just this lack of this in my life. And I don't know, I started by just, you know, I had to, I had to do something shocking when it comes to my taste in art, because of course I've been raised up. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder sort of, sort of view, right? Just right. naturally through the world. The twilight zone tells us anyway. Exactly. Right. And or Shakespeare, but I mean, I don't think that's what he meant. Um, or was it, was it Chaucer? I don't know. One of those two. Um, they don't teach literature anymore. Nobody knows. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I don't think I've read Chaucer. I've read, read some Shakespeare, but yeah, I, um, I guess I just wanted to wanted to find that, and I wanted to be able to to I wanted to to stop just trusting what I thought was good and actually realize what actually is good, right? Because in so many things in my life, what I felt was best was so often wrong, right? Because I'm just going off of my own subjective experience of the world and going off of my feelings, and that there is just as you could you know can imagine by all these other topics we talk about, there is that is just the natural way that people are today. We're all just desperate, desperately going off of our feelings, instincts, emotions. And when it came to art and music, I mean, I had to intellectually accept like, no, <laughs> just because you might like this thing does not mean that it is objectively the best thing for your soul, the best thing for your growth, the best, the best, most beautiful thing. So I was, you know, so I started trying to seek advice from, from others. And I talk about, about this a bit in the article. Um, but yeah, I guess you could jump. I'm curious what, what your, if you relate to that before I get into my love of art happening <laughs> judas iscariot was the first modern artist let me tell you why Ooh. judas iscariot was the first modern artist when i think it was in the gospel of john i think it's only recorded in the gospel of john um i could be wrong on this uh, heaven forfend i make a scriptural error on a catholic podcast but the uh it, it's the episode w with the alabaster jar where the woman i think it's identified with uh with martha um breaks um uh, a, an alabaster jar filled with uh, perfumed oils, right. okay, and anoints our Lord prior to his crucifixion. Now, all of the apostles are up in arms, but it's, it's pointed out that Judas Iscariot says, Lord, do you not know that this, this ointment could have been sold on the market for 300 days wages and given to the poor? Now, John, the God, you know, St. John adds that he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was, um, you know, inordinately consumed by money and by material things. And, and that's true, but also what's so important is what Christ says next. And I, again, I don't have the passage out in front of me, but it's, it's something to the effect of what she did, what Martha did, will be remembered anywhere the gospel is proclaimed in, in um, you know, in perpetuity. That... What she did will be remembered as a sign of anointing me for burial in memoriam throughout the generations, anywhere that this gospel is proclaimed. Jesus explicitly there talks about beauty beyond just the mere utility of an object. He elevates, he, he recognizes and appreciates the symbolic nature of what she did. Because yes, if we're purely material beings who have no higher spiritual sense or no sense of beauty or no sense of the divine, which is really what Judas's assertion was, right? If, if, because Judas is making the same argument that the, you know, 
the various detractors of the church make when they say, well, why don't you just sell all of the gold ornamentations in the Vatican and give the money to the poor? When in fact, the gold ornamentation in the Vatican is itself the biggest gift that the poor could ever receive because they enter into these holy and majestic churches and they're made one with, they're made one with the rich. The rich and the poor alike share the beautiful, ornate spaces that we use to worship God. So the, the best gift that we can give the poor, by the way, of course, parentheses, the Catholic Church is the single biggest charitable organization in the world. Mm-hmm. So let's like not lose sight of the fact that this is an either or. It's not. I mean, the church does more for people in poverty than, um, than Bernie Sanders ever will do or ever has done. But the truth is that our Lord viewed things in more than just materialist terms and recognized the role of beauty in symbolism and, and respect and prostration before the divine, because that's what that act was. Pouring out the alabaster jar to anoint our Lord before his crucifixion for his, in preparation for his burial was a symbolic act that, if viewed in purely in utilitarian terms, was, was probably wrong and evil, right? It was wrong and evil to, if, if we live in a zero-sum world, to destroy what could be sold for 300 days' wages and given to the poor if... There's no, if there's no higher value to be found in, in objective beauty. So I think, as far as I'm concerned, Judas Iscariot is the first modern artist. And that by itself condemns modern art more than I ever could rhetorically. That is a wonderful point. I have never, I have never heard anybody say that. I'm just, yeah, I, I've never thought of that story in that way, but you're completely right, right? That it, it, it really does boil down to a you know, materialist view of the world, that, that that's all we are, that everything is just utility. And I think we see this, I think, especially in architecture. Um, yes. If you look at oh, old building, that, that is where it's I the most obvious. This. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Do you have? Yeah. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. I just I'm I'm chomping at the bit. Go ahead. Just real excited about horrible modern architecture. Oh. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really it hurts us. You know, it hurts us when we see the ugliness in the world around us, and I think that people are it's almost hard to see how it, how it's harming us spiritually until you wake up to it. And then, and then all of a sudden all the ugliness around you, it's, it's, it's crushing, you know, I, it's, it's something that I'm sure you've experienced. And I know that for me, I have, and it, it's almost difficult not to be overly saddened by it because I like what you said about, you know, the, the rich and the poor um, being alike. And, and that's something that I think that the church specifically, the, the crisis in the, in the post-conciliar area in the Catholic church has had such an impact on the beauty of our entire, you know, human experience, at least, at least here where we are in North America. Um, I was just, you know, I'm thinking about it in terms of everything, really music, arts and architecture, because no matter who you were, if you, if you were growing up in, you know, the United States in, I don't know, 1900, even if you never, you know, went to fancy museums and your parents didn't, you know, listen to classical music, you at least knew that churches were beautiful and, mm. and there was religious art and there, there was good, beautiful music. And I mean, even, even non-Catholics at that point, right? Of course, like a lot of Protestant denominations still, you know, took on that, you know, I don't know, that, that artistic patrimony of Christendom into their things. That's why you do find some, some beautiful Protestant hymns. I mean, some of them are heretical, so I won't listen to those, but you know, you can at least find aesthetically beautiful things outside of the Catholic church. But you know, that that, it's very clear that the Catholic church really rooted that experience of beauty in people that may have otherwise never encountered it. And, and this also, this, this, it all, it all ties in. I mean, even the beauty of, you know, Catholic religious life, right? Seeing nuns and the joy in their face. I mean, what's, and of course, yeah, we can see the utility of nuns as well, right? We can see that they used to, you know, staff hospitals, run schools and all that, but that wasn't, 
that's not the starting point. And as soon as we made that the starting point, as soon as we made Catholic nuns to be a, you know, oh, we're just going to be social justice warriors and only do corporal works of mercy, we lost and, and, their meat. And ask Paul true. Ryan hard questions in town halls about Medicare. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> of course, right? I didn't even think, yeah, that's exactly what it's like. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think, I think it ties into everything. I was, I was watching... Um, I think I linked this in the article and I really recommend everyone watch it if you haven't. It's this wonderful documentary on YouTube um, by Roger Scruton. It's called Why Beauty Matters. Um, and I, I linked it in my piece because I was just like kind of saying, just, let's assume everyone agrees with me already. But if you don't watch this documentary, and he quoted um, Oscar Wilde. And I, I think the quote was, forgive me if I get the exact wording wrong, but um, something that beauty is, or, or sorry, true art is entirely um, without use, something along those lines. And what he was saying was that if you, if you, if you seek beauty first, instead of just utility, you end up with things that continue to be useful. If you seek only utility, you end up with things that are worthless and they, and do not last. And I mean, we can, of course, as you, as you said, you can see that in architecture, especially because you see these, these hideous buildings that are just, what can we make the edgiest, coolest thing with like the most glass and steel? for the, you know, this cool, super modern new bank or whatever. And then in 20 years, it is, you know, decrepit and, you know, covered in pigeon poop and uh, vandalism because there's no other use for it. It doesn't, it doesn't blend into the surroundings. It doesn't, it doesn't inspire you to be there. And then, and then we can still see the opposite. We are so naturally, you know, I also noted in my article as a child, just my natural attraction to things like big, beautiful churches and little pioneer cabins at, and like all these things that were, that were, there was something so beautiful about things that were made well. And I think that even like my earliest memories, there's just an attraction and I couldn't put it into words then. And I probably can't now because it's such a primal need for beauty and to be in beautiful spaces. And, you know, I, I don't know, I'd go and go to, go to Toronto and, and visit my sister and, you know, just these boring, horrible streets. And Toronto is not the most beautiful city in most places. And then you go to the old uh, distillery district and it's just the beautiful cobblestones and old buildings with cool walkways across them and old breweries. And it's just, it's just, you're just being there is uplifting. It just feels different. Even if you're just sitting there drinking coffee the same way for twice the price that you would be doing at some, you know, random Starbucks downtown. And yet it's just a different experience of living. And you know, people go to people go to Europe to see that, right? To see old cities. And yeah, I don't know. It's, it's hard for me to even put it into words well. And this is why I'm so intimidated by this journey of finding this beauty because I don't even always have the language for it. I, I don't know what to look for. It's just, it's just this kind of wandering in the desert sort of thing where I'm like, Lord, <laughs> I, want to, I want to shape my taste, what is actually best for me and for my son and for society, help me to find what's good because I don't know. <laughs> so my experience with this, my, and, and yeah, I want to hear all, all of that is so poignant. And, and I just find myself nodding along in agreement to almost to everything you say, because it's all so true, right? That, that nobody travels around the world to see some stupid glass building. I mean, it just, people travel. The shard. Right. No, <laughs> yeah. it's all absurd, right? People travel to see, you know, the glory of the Parthenon, the glory of ancient, you know, civilizations that, that made beautiful architecture. Leading Tower of Pisa. Right, all of it. Not, and it, not just ancient civilization, but, but the Renaissance and all of these beautiful periods of oh, artwork, yeah. right? So my, my experience with this, and this isn't the totality of my experience, but this is um, at least an anecdote that explains the direction from which I come at this topic. So I've spent the better part of my life 
um, growing up in a town where there was a state mental facility. Okay. And in town, you know, it's, it's recently, I, I became a regular volunteer there and, and this is something we can perhaps get into in a future episode, but it has been, um, the single greatest earthly consolation in my life without, without par- uh, parallel, um, for me working with the residents there. It's for adults with disabilities. Um, and it really has changed my life, but that's that we're now far afield. But the point in bringing that up is there was a theory, particularly, I mean, this, this facility is for adults with disabilities, so it's slightly different, but there was a theory in, um, when Dorothy Dix, who was really the, the, one of the first reformers of prisons in the United States and care for the mentally ill. There was a theory that, that developed among early psychiatrists in the late 1800s, you know, beginning of the, the 20th century, that in something called that was you know, an amalgam of, of what they were after is called milieu therapy. It was the belief that beautiful architecture and well-manicured grounds can contribute to somebody who's mentally ill or acutely mentally ill recovering faster. So, you know, uh, taking their treatment on beautiful, well-manicured grounds can actually enhance the treatment experience by putting them in a positive and peaceful milieu. So anybody in the United States in particular, but I'm sure this is true in Canada too, if you look at any mental facility built before 1950, the architecture is gorgeous. You have these august community revival, or excuse me, colonial revival architecture with Greco-Roman pillars and these daunting brick buildings that are just collegial. And, you know, the the facility in my town is over 1,600 acres of land. And it's just, it's a gorgeous, august, serene, rural setting that if you have this mindset that a positive and peaceful milieu helps people to recover who are mentally ill or, you know, in this case, you know, developmental disabilities, which is sort of a different beast altogether. But, But putting that distinction aside, it it signals that there is a, an objective role for beauty in the care of the mind, right? I mean, look at, and this, I, I guarantee you, I have enough knowledge on this subject to know that in all 50 states, if you look and find the oldest active mental institution in your state, you'll find some of the most gorgeous architecture in your entire state because they were all built under the, or under the, this idea of milieu therapy. Now, the ones that were built, you know, in the 1980s are most likely either like a single structure, you know, a vertical structure or one building that's built purely in a utilitarian way, or some of the modern psychiatric hospitals have all glass exteriors. And it's just a joke. It's totally, it's passe and they're utilitarian buildings. So I wrote a piece on this and and this is not a, I promise you, this is not a hedonistic point. I'm, I'm trying to flesh out my own thinking on this. So I wrote a piece for the Federalist, um, probably now it's about six months ago where I talked about, you know, because I I have, because of my experience with this facility in my town, I sort of have taken an interest in mental illness policy in the United States. And I wrote an article for the Federalist saying, you know, seven concrete ways we can improve the care for the mentally ill in the United States, the, the way that we treat people. I read that. Yeah. Thank. Yeah. And, and, it was great. I, thank you. But one point in there that I, w- I would not let myself submit the piece without adding this final point at the end was I made a direct mention. I think I, I and this is not because of some peculiar insight I've made, but it's because I've read the, the, you know, many of the great thinkers on the subject who are far smarter than I am, who appreciated the, no- the, the 
um, importance of beauty. I would not let myself submit that piece without adding at the end that we make clear what our goals are in treating the mentally ill by the way that the buildings that we treat them in look. I think that that point, it seems passe and it seems Absolutely. like, you know, inane to the, to the modern it's mind. It's common that's sense so, and yet. It's so focused on dollars and cents and utility and all of this and making things efficiently. But, you know, I said there's a dispositional difference between a campus setting, a serene campus setting to treat somebody who's dealing with acute psychosis or an acute phenomenon or a long-term mental problem and we can do an entire show on the abuse of the term mental illness, but that's another, that's another show altogether. Um, but for people with real mental illnesses who require inpatient treatment, um, the people who Dorothy Day or Dorothy Dix, um, excuse me, uh, set out to help in the first place, um, there's a dispositional difference that's made clear between a campus setting and a single building put in an urban area where people are warehoused and just thrown away and, and never seen again. Right? There's, a, there's a difference in disposition that we signal to the people that we're caring for in when we have those two different kinds of facilities. So what's the point in bringing up this seemingly obscure example? The point is that architecture and, and the way that we manicure the facilities that, that are ultimately the, the mediating institutions between us and our government and us and God, ultimately, right? A church is the, the physical church is the, is the meeting point. It's, it's a representation of the Holy of Holies, right? When the, when the priest ascends the altar, it's like, mm -hmm. the, like people in ancient uh, Judaism, or not ancient, I suppose, but, but, but Judaism, Judaism in the past ascending you know, to the Holy of Holies, it's, there's a certain symbolism there that we need to appreciate our physical spaces as objects that worship God. And how do we worship God but, but, create, but by creating things that are objectively beautiful? And this is where I want to go with you here, the difference between taste and objective standards and beauty. You can go ahead and pick up on that. <laughs> yeah, I want to make one quick point on too on your, um, those are all great points and I completely agree with them. I like hearing you speak about, uh, you know, the mental health care and all that stuff. Cause that's such an interesting insight that most people would not even think of. But anyways, I, um, when you, when you talk about churches, right. And that being in a, you know, a physical, a physical part of what we believe and, you know, how we live our lives, even out, it's even outside of the church. Right. It's very interesting to me because I see a kind of running theme here is that there is this insistence on total, um, you know, utilitarianism when it comes to anything we use, right? Like, how can we do this thing in the, you know, for, you know, form follows function or whatever, you know, that kind of stupid style of architecture, which, you know, I think I, I want to, I definitely want to get into music in a minute too, because I think that might um, be another area that's important. But yes, in any case, it's, it's interesting because we really have that view. And yet, because human beings are, you know, have an innate need to connect with their creator, you know, an innate spiritual, you know, we are, you know, we are spiritual animals, whether a person is a Christian or not, they, they do have an, you know, a natural desire for God, you know, on some level. And when you, you know, being that that is true, it's interesting how there's almost this Gnostic element to yes. the way we do things like architecture, right? Because despite being totally utilitarian, you these people cannot completely crush the, the human soul. They cannot completely crush the innate human sense of, of wanting to be lifted higher. I mean, think about think about all the ways, you know, people experience this in, in nature, right? You, you can't stop that. You can't stop, a, you know, a little kid from seeing a sunset and sitting on a rock and looking out at the water and you just, you feel that connection to something more that life is more than just, you know, how much money you spent at the corner store, you know, on your way over with your bike, right? And 
and there's this this gnostic sense that really that really seeps into how um how we how we look at art and how we we really think that it, it it doesn't affect us right and that we can just we can remove the physical aspect right it's it's like it's gnosticism and iconoclasm in a lot of ways as well just this idea that you know okay you can be spiritual you're allowed to be spiritual in our you know in our you know concrete hellscape but you can't do it with anything real because you don't need that. If you were really spiritual, you know, you can worship God. I mean, you guys have all seen the, the, you know, what passes for, you know, modern, beautiful Catholic churches, right? These new horrible things that are literally like a, literally look like a concrete prison with, you know, a crucified Lord. Maybe if we're lucky, (laughs) if we're lucky, we might get a corpus. Um, But yeah, it's, it's interesting. And I, I completely agree as well with, so objective standards of beauty rather than taste right <laughs> i think that there is i'm not as I'm, I'm sure you're more knowledgeable about the specifics of this than than i am but i i guess the way i would approach it would be through for me i really i guess it was most personally experienced for me in terms of in in regard to music right because my my just to again this this area this topic covers so many areas of human life yeah. but you know i I think of music and I think of things, what is just pleasing to the ear, right? What are things that I just like to have on to listen to? And there is a big difference now that I, I know, you know, what art sounds like and, and have actually taken the time to get to know it between something that is just pleasant to hear and a very kind of animal level versus something that is, is deeper and higher and objectively better. Yes. And my dad and I were chatting about this the other day. And fortunately, thanks to him, I didn't, you know, I, I grew up at least like he always said, like, even when I was a kid, he's like, actually, he's like, classical music is definitely the best music, you know, but and yet we listen to I grew up like 100, like so much 70s rock, like all that stuff. And I again, I'm not completely Something against, to be said for that. <laughs> yeah. And like, I'm yeah, exactly. I'm like, thankfully, you know, I wasn't exposed to, you know, all the worst stuff or anything. And, and I'm not saying that. I'm necessarily saying that I now am like, okay, I will never again listen to, you know, a nice feel good eighties playlist. <laughs> John has a very good feel good. I 80s do. Playlist that I listen look to. up, look up smooth tracks on Spotify. It's <laughs> I was going to say like, I actually have listened to his podcast, but, or his podcast, his playlist, but it's all, know, uh, it's all yacht rock, you know, you yacht know, rock. Cruising, you're such a dad. Some, you. <laughs> you're such a dad. It's true. But yeah, it's so I'm not saying necessarily that I'm completely dispensed with all that 100% and I can only have the highest music. On the other hand, I know that, you know, I, as much as my dad, fortunately, I, I'm happy that he told me that he's like, you know, I don't necessarily I think he's he actually said this quote, which I thought was funny. He's like, in the car the other day, he's like, you know, I don't actually that doesn't mean I always enjoy listening to classical music the most, but it's definitely the best. <laughs> and I think that, you know, it's that's like, something. yeah, right. That That's the step to getting there, right? Is is there is an act of the will involved, I think, in finding. And that, and that, I think, also kind of goes from taste to truly, you know, honing your taste to fit what is, what is truly beautiful. And, and classical music is interesting in that way because there's a, a mathematical precision to it, right, to yes. the great composers. It's not just throwing things together. And, you know, and I'm somebody, you guys, most of you have heard me, you know, goof around and sing and I like to strum chords on my guitar and whatever and make noise. But that's very different than composing art right you know that's how i say it's bad it's not bad to sit around a campfire and sing but it's it's, it's not bad the music same. but it's not bad for you yeah that's a good point and th- that is true as well i think that there's um there's some really interesting article i i think i linked some interesting articles in my article about this so if anyone is interested in thinking you know what hey maybe i should give classical music a chance i, d- I did link some good stuff there's some very talented very um musically minded um colleagues of mine one peter five but um i'll be quiet in a second i promise yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but you know, well, even me, the even the intro and the outro to our show are both classical music. You have um, yes, correct. You have Beethoven on the intro and Chopin, who's my favorite composer, on the outro. Absolutely. Well, it's and it's just it's so funny to me watching. I guess I guess my my kind of final my main point with the article as well is just kind of saying that. I really relate my my growing, changing taste in art and music with just the difference in my life of since, you know, kind of entering into a state of sanctifying grace, because it, it really has changed me. Not only now do I, because at first, like I said, I, I kind of was looking at music and art and I said, I, I'm like, you know what? I want to be more cultured. I want to have a better sense of what is, what is beautiful. And, but it, it was a conscience effort. And at first I had to kind of think of like sort of gateway drugs, right? Like at first I was like, okay, I'm going to listen to more movie soundtracks, right? Cause that's good, you know, deeper music. And that was like a gateway thing. Like Lord, listening to like the Lord of the Rings soundtrack or something like that, you know, because it is beautiful. It's good, beautiful music. It might not be, you know, it's not Tchaikovsky necessarily, but it's, you know, it's, it's a little more, it's a higher thing, right. Than whatever, you know, pop song I was listening to. And so, but doing that and it's, but I, it's, it was like entering into a state of sanctifying grace. And I say that because, you know, once I made that decision, I made that choice and I said, like, look, God, I want to, I want to find the beauty that so much of the world has lost. I, I want that. You know, I'm choosing that. I'm going to try. I'm going to make an effort. I'm going to, you know, not only just what I had initially done when I converted and just get rid of like my super, you know, blatantly immoral music, right? And I was never again that into art. So it's kind of a blank slate, you know, so... I was going to do more than that. I wanted to actually intentionally expose myself to things I knew were better. And, you know, and it's kind of just, like I said, stumbling in the desert, like, okay, I like, okay, Lord of the Rings, that's good music, right? Let's, let's listen to that. And then I was like, oh, Beethoven's good. Mozart, like, you know, I've heard these names and I was thinking, and as for art, you know, I don't know anything about art and I still don't. Um, but I thought, okay, Raphael, Caravaggio, you know, like I thought of people that I, you know, recognize and I right. tried to expose myself, but there, so then but then it became something else. Like it wasn't just my personal actions. It was more, I could tell that I was now kind of disposed to, to fall in love with it, I guess, to, to fall in love with art and music in a way that I don't think I could have had I not actually made the decision, you know, and for art, it was, you know, reading about um, Blessed Fra Angelico, this uh, Renaissance artist, uh, he's a Dominican, Dominican friar. And I read about him in a book that had no picture of his work. So I just was so like, read about him. He's amazing. I was so amazed by his life and the way he, you know, he didn't want to, sorry, I'm just repeating most of my article. <laughs> he didn't want to change anything once, once he painted it because he felt it would go against the will of God for his peace. And, you know, he always would pray and he'd, he'd cry when he would, you know, paint our crucified Lord and all these things. And it was just, there was something about him that I found so endearing and beautiful and reading what others wrote about him. And I was like, I just remember going on Google, like, please let this guy be an actual good artist that I aesthetically like, because I really like this guy. I think this is going to be my favorite artist. And then I looked at his paintings and they were, they were just beautiful. And then with music, it was the complete total opposite experience. I was sitting there with my son and just, I don't know, we were on YouTube and I was like, again, one of my like very cultured, like, okay, Dawson, let's be cultured, like violin music, because like, <laughs> I don't know anything about this stuff. And I happened upon this beautiful, older black and white uh, performance um, by this, this um, younger Asian girl, an older thing, and she's playing the violin and just her expression and her body language and just the way she's just her technical skill. And then you know, I just close my eyes and, and hear this music. And it was just one of the most beautiful things. And, you know, and I, and, and then I learn it's by this, um, uh, by Niccolo um, Paganini. I think it's his six sonata or something. I say it in the articles. Yeah. I barely remember the title of one of my favorite pieces because again, I'm just, I'm, I'm coming at this as a, as a total plebe. Okay. Like I don't know anything about this. Me too. And I'm, 
I'm hoping that comes across like as genuine, like you can do this, you can find beauty because, because I did. And, and then with Paganini, I, I had the opposite thing. I, I'm like, I'm going to look this guy up. I mean, he is probably Catholic, right? You know, lots of these. And of course he was, he's a bad Catholic and a womanizer and an alcoholic. And, and people said that he had sold his soul to the devil uh, to get his musical talent. So he's still my favorite composer. <laughs> and I don't know. It's just been interesting to, it's been interesting. To, it's really something that feels more than just me you know, I, I could sit, you know, I could sit there all day and be like, I want to learn about art and music, but I really felt like with these certain specific things, these little things, once I was looking that that's when you, you know, when you make the decision to, to understand the objective beauty, then your taste gets better too. And then, and then you have that emotional connection to it. It wasn't just like sitting down being like, okay, this is objectively good. Yep. I enjoy this. It became like, like falling in love. Like, like, wow. You know, I just, it, I, I felt it, you know, I, I felt it in the same way that, you know, you're a teenager and you, you have these songs that are so related to, and I think that's the closest thing a lot of us have to that experience with art, right, is, is the, like, I think of, the, you know, these objectively crappy pop songs from 2004, and they have that beauty because, were, I don't know, like, Cry <laughs> <laughs> to You by Michelle Branch, I don't know, shut up. <laughs> You know what I mean, though. Because no, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, my first, one of my first ever girlfriends I had as a kid. When oh, no. woke up, I listened to "Hey There, Delilah" by the Plain White Tees. I get it, man. Hey there, get it. Yes, yes. Or "Chasing Cars" by Snow Patrol. I actually oh. sang that the other day. I have a karaoke track of that one. It's a cute song. <laughs> oh, but, but you know, yeah. So I guess I just I'm excited to make some, you know, some new connections with those new things and that they're beautiful and higher music. Sorry. That was like a 20 minute rant. It's yeah. Be sorry. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Um, and people come to the show for you. They don't come. No, they, no, they come for you to make fun. Like what they don't see is that you're going to be like making fun of me about Michelle branch. <laughs> well, no. Uh, yeah. Yes. yes. And no. But, <laughs> like, no, actually I will. Anyways. Actually, no, I will. Um, that's a, it's a national pastime, but the, um, no, so I mean, that's right. And I feel as though the the difference between taste and objective standards of beauty is this. I enjoy listening to my smooth tracks playlist more than I listen more than I enjoy listening to Johann Sebastian Bach or Mozart or Tchaikovsky or Chopin or um, you know, even Gershwin or some of the more modern composers, whoever. Okay. I prefer listening to Ambrosia, Elton John, Billy Joel, you know, all the, the, the uh, yacht rock that comprises my smooth track playlist. I enjoy that more. That's a matter of taste. That's a matter of personal preference. That does not mean that because I have a personal preference for, um, you know, Billy Sister Joel, Golden Hair. Or okay. Sister Golden Hair by... Yeah, it's a good song. <laughs> right, which is a good song in its own right. Or, or On and On by Stephen Bishop or, or uh, How Much I Feel by Ambrosia. All of these songs are great songs and they're better than Cardi B, objectively and subjectively. They're both better than Cardi B. <laughs> Cardi um, B, the, the drugging thief. Anyway, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, the malevolent, you know, um, predator, as far as I'm concerned. But... <laughs> Um, poor Cardi B. Yeah, poor Cardi B. Don't ever admit things on social media. That's the lesson, folks. But um, no, but the um, that might be my taste, but that doesn't make those things objectively better than Tchaikovsky. So 
art is not a democracy. Beauty is not democratically decided. This is the difference between Boom. this is the difference between people who believe in objective standards of beauty and the modern sensibility, which says, so long as you're expressing your truth and it resonates with other people, right? That other people find your art appealing enough to put it in some museum somewhere. So even if you paint a red stripe down a black carpet and hang it up on the wall. Yes, I know. I, I, I'm specifically referencing um, whatever the heck that thing, that's stupid. I want to tell that anecdote when you're done. Yeah, so. tell, the, tell the anecdote after this. Um, but the, you know, just because some art curators or, or museum curators rather at, at some, you know, who have stupid degrees from a school, you know, in the Northeast get to decide that magically your art is worthwhile because they find it meaningful and they think other people will find it meaningful at base, whether they subscribe to the more democratic, you know, ideal or the more aristocratic ideal of beauty where either somebody with an art history degree from Northeastern gets to decide whether your thing is art or not, or, um, the majority who wills it to be good art, you know, because people think Jackson Pollock was endearing in some way that, that magically, benights him with uh, status as an artist. Whereas, you know, somebody who believes in objective beauty standards would say, Michelangelo is objectively superior to Jackson Pollock, period. Whether or not every single person was deluded enough to believe that Jackson Pollock was artistically superior to Michelangelo, he wasn't. He wasn't. Boom. Bach is superior. And, and that sounds like a statement without, without, um, without backing. And to some degree it is because some of these things you do have to take on faith because there is no, I mean, yes and no, because all of this, and as Stephanie alluded to earlier, the basis for claiming an objective standard of beauty is believing in an objective creator, mm -hmm. right? That's the ultimate basis for this claim. So there is a degree of faith there, of course, but nevertheless, I think each of us instinctually understands the same way we instinctually understand that the mass genocide of uh, you know, ethnic minorities is objectively wrong. Yeah. Even if the majority of people willed it to be so, it would still be objectively wrong in some non-quantifiable way or some non-democratic way that existed outside of the majority opinion. Mm -hmm. It would still be wrong to do that in some concrete way that's other than a democratically agreed upon consensus, right? We, we think that that's objectively wrong in some other and discrete way. In the same way, like you were saying, a, a, a musical structure that follows concrete specific mathematical patterns that elevates the senses, that elevates the mind, that is operating in complex, um, you know, what, what's the time, time series, or, um, uh, you know, like, anyway, I'll... I know nothing about music. I'm yeah. sorry. I can't um, read music. You know, but things that operate in very complicated forms and involve multiple instruments, you know, Melody, harmony. Melody, harmony, all of Not them. just rhythm, which is what we're seeing now, Not and that's rhythm. what I was reading. That's right. like the main thing music is now. But it's like the lowest of, thing. But all of those things taken together in the same way that we know that things are objectively wrong outside of democratically reached or democratically arrived upon consensus or consensuses. I don't know the plural of that word. Um, the same, too, for art. It is objectively true in the same way that morality is objectively true that that art that elevates like Bach that takes precision and and just just evinces utter beauty is superior to Cardi B which appeals to the most base instincts that we have as human beings to rhythm like you're saying to mm -hmm. beats to various you know 
um, to various drum patterns. To ver- they're very primal. They're very um, animalistic yes. in, in so many ways. Whereas there's nothing more human and rational than classical music. It's the apex of human reason as applied to music. It's the apex of human creativity as applied to music. Whereas Cardi B and uh, John Mellencamp Nicki Minaj. and Nicki Minaj and Queen, though Queen has, has their exceptions where they seem to elevate beyond the, t- the standard fare of their genre. At least there's an intricacy. Right, yeah, there's, there's an intricacy. intricacy, right? I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody is shoulder, head and shoulders above, you know, um, oh. Miley Cyrus or Nicki Minaj or any of these other people. So, <laughs> Comparing Bohemian Rhapsody. To- rant, rant over. I'm not even... I'm Anaconda. Not even, I'm not even completely satisfied with the answer, the defense that I just gave of objective beauty standards. I want to get into it further, but talk about the anecdote because your anecdote is clarifying. Okay. So, you know, it's, 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 I like the way that you said that though, that it's, it really does rely on an objective moral truth, right. Or an objective truth in general, right. That, of course, that's why society's gone insane because we can't decide that as Chesterton puts it that you know an egg is an egg, right? It's not a it's not a thought about an egg. It's just an egg because it is what it is, you know. Um, but yeah, and I think it's interesting too that when you look at the moral standard, I, I had that kind of experience in my own life, and I talk about this again in my article about this painting called Voice of Fire. I forget when it was painted. It doesn't matter because it wasn't actually painted. It's literally three lines on a sheet of paper. I could do it. My son could possibly do it if he'd sit still long enough. Johnny might even be able to do it. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's literally like three lines on, on the canvas and it's, it's idiotic. And I remember distinctly being a little kid. I got some um, you know, children's magazine and one of, the, one of the articles was talking about this painting selling for like at the time like $2 million. I think it's like $30 million now or something like like, by the way, uh, modern art is just a money, money laundering operation for the rich. I'm pretty convinced of that one, that conspiracy. But um, the, this painting is, is, is awful, right? It's objectively crap. And I remember being a little kid and saying, Mom, look at this. Look how stupid this is. This is a painting. I could have done that. And I'm, and I'm not a good artist um, that you know, sold for $2 million. And my mother um, mentioned how she's like, well, no, it's, it's called Voice of Fire. And isn't that brilliant? Because look, it makes you so angry. And, blah, blah. and I was like, and it's like I felt gaslighted like I like am I stupid like am I do I have bad taste like I I felt like I remember being a little kid and just being like but that doesn't make sense it's a really crappy stupid painting you know why would it be that expensive and and why is something just because you know you come up with a fancy term and I think that's when I really you know that just bothered me and there's something about well, that's that the difference that's the, just to interject my, very quickly just to interject very quickly please it's it's your mom is expressing, or at least in that instance, is expressing the difference, uh, the, the the plain dichotomy that we see in in these in this really in this debate, right? You have: do we adhere to reason, or does reason adhere to us? Do we create reality by intersubjective consensus, and the only thing that's good or bad about a painting is what it evokes in you? Or is something a good or bad painting outside of what Stephanie Nicholas thought as a 12-year-old? I mean, that's, those are the two perspectives that, that are really, I think, profoundly put before us in your anecdote. So continue. I just wanted to bring that point up. Yeah, no, you're, you're completely right. And, you know, and I'm, again, I'm not really saying anything specific about my mother. I mean, I don't even know what she'd say of it right. now. It's probably I mean, just an I mean, offhand comment. No, me too. Even in my article, I was like, you know, it's probably an offhand comment. But in any case, there's also that, that distinct level of um, 
there's something I find very uncharitable about, about modern art in that way that, you know, you're, you're treated like a crazy person. If you think, you know what, this is just ugly garbage. <laughs> and it's, there's, there's this kind of this kind of sanctimonious gaslighting, right? And it's, it's, it really is a matter of the emperor having no clothes. And I think that it's, it's interesting when you see children, because, you know, as a child, you know, as a child, even I just instantly was like, this is nonsense, you know? And, and there's something about, as you said, it's, it becomes, I find that the, the worse art so-called gets, the more it has to be described and talked about, you know, and, and that's, and that's telling, you know, I, I remember being, you know, a little kid and I'd, I'd go to a museum and you'd, you'd look at a beautiful painting and you could, you could say some things about it. You know, you wouldn't have to, you wouldn't have to know a ton about art to be able to say, wow, that's beautiful. Look, look at her eyes. They look so real. She looks so happy. You know, that just these normal human things, whatever, whatever it is, or look at this bowl of fruit. It looks, it looks like real life and look at the way the light's hitting it, you know, or, or with modern art, you know, you have the, you have the alternative, which is look at this, this mug. Wow. It's called Bob's Diner, it evokes a 1950s Americana and really speaks to the stress of the 1950s working woman when her husband has become an alcoholic and abandoned her and her children. And the, the fact red that stimulates her premenstrual blood. It's like, no, it's a freaking mug and that was $8. That white, and the fact that it's white evokes the racial struggles and concentration yes. in the United States. Yeah, I was doing a bad job. Like, we could go, like, this is like a challenge, a challenge thing. I will never forget meeting meeting someone in in person once who, who i really respect in like professional sense and he he starts going off about this painting on the wall that was like these like gray stupid lines and he just starts like waxing poetic about it and i'm just sitting there like he's joking please tell me he's joking and then he was like oh i'm totally kidding that's such bullshit mm-hmm. <laughs> i was like yes and it was so good and so convincing and uh but no but that if that like i'm being a little bit a little bit facetious but they go further like if you look up some of these paintings right they look up look up bad modern art and then get the titles of the paintings go on google and search them and find like hoity-toity art crap it's it's almost fascinating to look into these people's minds that how far they will go to just to be able to tell themselves to justify themselves this that this mug costs one million dollars and this chip was intentional and it's called you know emblematic of the artist's rage you know, or the klutziness of my three-year-old knocking it off the counter and, uh, you know, that this is literally a, but, but it could be anything. This is genuinely, this is actually probably nicer than some modern art I've seen. Yeah. At least this isn't like a, it isn't like a turd in a soup kit or something. <laughs> Excuse my vulgarity, but it's, yeah, that's art. That's art. And yeah, <laughs> modern art is awful. In every conceivable way, it degrades society. I, I want to read this quote from uh, James F. James F. Cooper uh, wrote a piece in First Principles um, <laughs> entitled "The Problem with Modern Art or Why Beauty Why Beautiful Art Matters." He says, um, "Quote: Beauty provides the key to a door that conservatives have been trying in vain to unlock for almost a century. That door leads to a world that reflects the timeless values and permanent truths." that conservatives hold dear faith transcendence virtue freedom god patriotism natural law conservation in short what i'm suggesting is that beauty provides the epistemological structure of a good society not only through the ideological infrastructure its laws religion customs and government but in the physical structure of its architecture homes uh, public works monuments roads and bridges most importantly Beauty resides in the work of, works of religion. 
in offerings to God. This is not a new idea. Indeed, it is a very old idea, older than the ancient Greeks and or the than ancient Greece and Egypt, going back to the first evidence of civilization, the cave paintings of Paleolithic man, when art and the spiritual were one. Primitive man evoked the power of the gods to save the clan from starvation or to prevail over its enemies in battle. The ancient Greeks held no separation between art and religion. Art was religion. Religion was art. This is what Plato means when he says, when he said art is politics, politics is art. Form and content are inseparable. This has been true of many civilizations from ancient Egypt through Christendom and the Renaissance to the artifacts of Dogen, Europa, and there's some weird tribal community that I can't pronounce. Now, there's a lot in there that I don't necessarily agree with. There's a sort of pantheism that's sort of suggested in there, right? Where it's like, oh, you know, we're all, you know, all religions are similar, man. <coughs> you know what I mean? It's sort of like, uh, you know, look at how similar we all are. You know, ecumenism, dialogue, you know, all, all of that yeah. is sort of embedded. Modernism. So, right, putting all, putting all of those intonations aside, the, the broader point stands in that there's something really human about expressing one's love for God through art because art transcends, you know, the, the normal interactions that we have with other people and it lifts us up. It, it raises us up, up above uh, the normal and germane circumstances of our everyday lives and, and holds us to something higher and brings us to something closer to God. And if God is, is the greatest of all goods than something that's greater than humans because art is better because it can be manipulated and it can be formed to be more perfect than human beings are than most human beings anyway, and save, save perhaps two, um, you know, who, who falls short of the, the man, manicured glory of art, the manufactured and manicured glory of well-produced art. So, I think the the writer or the author of that piece is, is right on in saying that we, in our aspirations to the divine, we ignore at our own peril the beauty that we can access through created art. I agree completely. And it's also, you know, just a, it's a window that's accessible to us. And I, I really think about this as a mother, you know, I, I think about even, even the simplest expressions of art that my son sees you know, it's, it's one thing for me to, to become a Catholic and be on the internet and do all this reading and, and have that access to the faith in a, just in, in a kind of headspace way. Like I said, there's that kind of thread of Gnosticism that kind of goes through everything where we can never just experience it with our, with our bodies. And, um, even though, you know, God created us body and soul and there's something about that art and that beauty that, you know, the, the first church that Dawson and I attended, you know, the, for our old parish, you know, there wasn't really, you know, there wasn't a place to light votive candles, you know, there wasn't as many statues of Fortunately, they had a few, um, you know, there wasn't sacred music, there wasn't much art, you know, it's just very hollow. And, and I look at the way that, you know, even, even something as simple as like a holy card that, you, that you're praying with, right? There's something more, it's, it's more beautiful to have a holy card with just a little printed reproduction of some beautiful picture of St. Joseph, right? Than just a, just a card that says, here's a prayer to St. Joseph. Because when you pray it, you're, you're looking at it and you're looking at that, that tiny, you know, shadow of, of the person that, you know, you're asking, asking, to, asking 
his help, you know, and it's, it's beautiful. And I, I look at my son and I just see that in a really real concrete way, you know, that I'll be sitting down to pray and he has no idea. He doesn't want to sit still. He's not patient, but he does know, you know, he looks and he's go, Mary, you know, cause he knows. And it's, it's, it's a real way to experience it. And when we go into church and I get him to, you know, put a dollar in the votive candle lighting thing. And I say, okay, we're going to, you know, light this candle for, you know, or your grandmother or whatever. And it's, it's, I know that's not exactly art, but it's still, it's a, it's a physical real thing. And, and you, there's no real use for that, right? There's not a utility in that. They're not going to, you know, the, the church could just as easily, I could just as easily light that candle and not spend a cent and it would cost the church money. <laughs> but that's, that's not the purpose. It's, it's a real, it's a real thing. It's not a magic spell. It's not a magic thing that, that, you know, makes our, makes our prayers just automatically, you know, get to heaven. It's, it, that's not the point. It's, it's a, it's a connection. It's a, it's a real thing that, that brings us back to concrete reality. And, and you know, when you do that and you, you kneel down with your little child and, and you light a candle and you, you know, look up at statue of the blessed Virgin Mary, there's, there's something real about that, that you cannot get. Transcendent. Yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's transcendent. And, and you can't get that just sitting on in some, you know, empty, sterile, modern church with crappy music, you know, and stark pews we need it we really we really need it and i hope you know i hope that listening to this that you know make you just just try and just make an effort to listen to a little bit of classical music and and look up some nice art you know that's it just just think about think about you know i i still make these these imperfect choices you know i I, I'm not a, you know, totally like, I will disdain all the music and art of modernity. And, you know, I will never let my child watch anything but, you know, <laughs> I don't know, perfect educational things about sea creatures or whatever. Um, but, but at least I'm making the choices consciously. Because if we don't, if we don't make those choices, if we, if we don't say, hey, we need, to, we need to see the beauty that we all, we know we like and we know we want. If we don't make those choices, you know, modernity is going to make those choices for us. So make a choice. So I'm going to link. Uh, so we have um, we have some exciting news to to share. We are uh, moving our show over to a different sort of format and a different uh, network. Details will you know be forthcoming. Uh, so stay stay tuned for that. But I we'll still be on YouTube for so on YouTube. Yep. So stay subscribed. Keep subscribing. Keep share subscribing. this. Share our videos. Here, but. Course. Bigger things, are, we're excited. Yeah. Better quality and stuff too. Very excited to announce that we have some producers and, and, and so forth who are going to be helping us out. So it's going to be great. Um, I'm also going to link below um, to get a sense of some of that architecture I was talking about, um, I think in the second little bit that I gave. There's a page on Facebook called Asylum Projects, which goes through some of the uh, psychiatric hospitals of the late 1800s through the middle of the 20th century that were built under the, you know, ideology that I spoke about before. And you can really get a sense for some of the beautiful. Wow. Um, look at that. So anyway, thank you very much for tuning in. And um, I, I just also want to say um, my own personal observation. I think Stephanie's a wonderful mother. I just, it evokes tremendous oh, emotion you. in me to hear um, the way that she, she raises her son and to have such a, you know, an adoration of God and the divine is just, it's, it's everything you need to know about the, the mother that Stephanie is. So I congratulate you on that. Um, so oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, emotional on podcast. <laughs> thank you for tuning in. Um, like or dislike the video below, do whatever, you know, you've got to do whatever your prerogative is. Uh, share, pray for us. Pray for us. We'll pray for Biggest you. Thing. Um, share the podcast. We have, uh, we're on SoundCloud as of, as of the current moment, we're on iTunes as of the current moment. 
Um, we, you know, we'll have links to our Twitters, all that stuff uh, below in the description and uh, subscribe to this YouTube channel. Cause that's sticking around. Okay. Thanks guys. This has been unapologetics. God love you.